From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The truth is that we are in a climate emergency. We have less than 10 years to make substantial changes to our society and way of life and our economy. I want to stress from the outset that this pandemic is far from over. Those who have never fought for the colors they fly should be careful about criticizing those who have. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepker. Now, the fuel crisis is not over. The Petrol Retailers Association has told Bloomberg Radio it's going to take weeks to return to normal. Gordon Barmer told us dampening demand for fuel will be key to resolving the issue. And even though fuel companies have confidence the government's measures will fix the crisis, he blamed a leak of ministerial meetings for triggering the crisis. This situation wasn't there a couple of weeks ago, yet the issue did exist. Um, but when the news broke um, about a week ago uh, of uh, minutes from a, a meeting, a cabinet meeting that was supposed to be confidential uh, into the media, and then we had some more lurid headlines amongst some of the Lloyd press, uh, that didn't help the situation, I'm afraid. So Gordon Bulmer there from the PRA on the fuel crisis. Meanwhile, pressure is continuing on the commissioner of the Metropolitan Police after former officer Wayne Cousins was given a whole life sentence for the murder of Sarah Everard. Senior politicians have called for the resignation of Cressida Dick over the crisis in public trust in the police. The Met faces questions over whether more could have been done to prevent the murder as it investigates whether Cousins committed other crimes. But now let's get on to the subject of our special programme today. This week saw Labour trying to carve its new post-Covid image as the party of future government at its conference in Brighton. But on Sunday, the Conservatives hold their gathering in Manchester, with Boris Johnson hoping to push what his party wants to achieve in the post-pandemic era. Now, he's unlikely to face the kind of heckling that Keir Starmer had, but that doesn't mean that all Conservatives are on board with all that he will be saying. The central problem is how to advance the plan to level up among former Labour voters who swung to the Tories without at the same time alienating traditional Conservative voters. Well, let's talk about all this with Dr. Victoria Honeyman, who's Associate Professor of Politics at Leeds University and joins us now. Uh, Victoria, thanks for being with us. Um, Let me ask you then, Boris Johnson is leading in the polls at the moment. He's got through COVID with some measure of public confidence. He can now move on to his aim of levelling up. So this is a man in a party with a lot to be pleased about, isn't it? It is. Um, they're in a, in a much stronger position than Keir Starmer finds himself in currently. And I think that we will see a very different party conference in Manchester than the party conference for the Labour Party that we saw in Brighton. But as was rightly said in the introduction, that doesn't mean that there aren't problems for the Conservative Party. And they've got two really big ones on the horizon. The first one you've already mentioned, which is levelling up. Actually, what does it mean? How do you do it? How do you do it and try and and make two different demographic groups happy in different parts of the country? But 
linked to that is also the issue of what the Conservatives see themselves as. It's a bit of a kind of existential question. At the moment, they are a big spending, fairly interventionist government. COVID has provided them with a reasoning to do that. But many traditional Conservatives will not be happy with that continuing. And these are really where the future battle lines are going to be drawn for the Conservative Party and really where they need to, to pay some attention to make sure that it doesn't turn into a war zone. Well, how big an issue is is the first thing that you mentioned, you know, keeping on board red wall Tories and Conservative sort of traditional voters at the same time? It's extremely difficult. How do you essentially tax one group or raise the fear of tax in one group without upsetting anybody else? It's extremely difficult. And the Conservatives are almost the architects of their own doom. They've done so well at chipping away at that red wall that now they actually have to to try and square the circle. I think the way that they'll probably do it is to try and and be all things to all men. They'll essentially argue that they can level up without crushing middle-class voters under tax reform. But realistically, when you consider the finances of the country, that's going to be extremely difficult to do. And those new blue Conservatives in former Red Wall seats, particularly in the north of England, want to see some detail. They want to know what levelling up actually means. Slogans are all well and good, but at the end of the day, in a few years' time, those voters are going to go back to the election, uh, into the polling station, and they are going to want to know what the Conservatives have actually done. And at the moment, we just don't know what levelling up actually looks like. Well, let, let's drill into that, because I mean, you're in Leeds, uh, you're in sort of mm-hmm. the area broadly of a lot of the Red Wall seats, and I know that, that you, uh, Leeds University, you take some soundings really to see what people are saying, and do you get the impression that these Red Wall voters are potentially malleable? They could go back to Labour under certain circumstances. I don't think that there's any doubt that those, that those voters are, are malleable. They, they are voters who find themselves disillusioned with the Labour Party, but willing to give the Conservatives a go, although perhaps traditionally that would not have been something that they would have found acceptable. But they want bang for their buck. They've been promised things by the Conservative Party, even if those things didn't necessarily have a lot of detail attached to them. So, for example, investment in the infrastructure, investment in the transport system, HS2 is a very big issue. All of the issues about, really, it's not necessarily a north-south issue, but about the kind of dissemination of money out of London. Those are the kind of things that um, individuals within former Red Wall seats are going to want to see. And the question is, how much money is that going to cost? If you've got a former mining community, for example, that was a Red Wall seat that is now Conservative, they want to see heavy investment in order to see what they consider are necessary changes in order to build investment in their local communities, support the local school, make sure that the local A&E department is open. And the Conservatives are not really committed to any of that on any particularly wide scale. So at the moment, it's really for the Conservatives to fill in that detail for those voters, or else they could very easily be tempted back to Labour. Okay, well, what about voters sort of further south in, in, in the heartlands, I guess, in the southeast of England of, um, you know, Conservative voters? Uh, is this now a party of high taxation and spending alongside social conservatism? Is that the new reality for those Tory voters in the south? Is this a sort of sea change? That, that's their major fear. The major fear of of, of what you might label the kind of true blue conservatives, the traditional heartlands of the Conservative Party, is are we being expected to pay for the changes that the Tories want to make elsewhere in the country? At the moment, Rishi Sunak and the Treasury are suggesting that you don't need to do that, that you can 
make changes to the system and that it doesn't have to fall on, on middle-class voters. Um, and and what you categorise as middle-class voters is in of itself a, a bit of a contested term. But for those Conservatives who are traditionally about Conservatives in the heartlands, they will be looking to avoid big tax rises. That would be, I would suggest, why the Conservative Party have shied away from anything relating to inherent tax changes. There's talk about changes to pensions, but we're not entirely sure where that's going to go at the moment. They really do need to be careful not to scare the horses, because if they do want to spend big, then they need to make sure for their own electoral success in those areas that it isn't those um, individuals who feel like that they, that they are carrying the burden. And therefore, at the moment, the Conservatives have been very light on detail, uh, but, but fairly big on promises to try and, as I said, be all things to all men. Victoria, what about the position of Boris Johnson in, in all this? Because in the past, uh, party the party has sometimes been formed in one person's image. I mean, everyone thinks back, of course, to Margaret mm-hmm. Thatcher. Probably wasn't the case so much with David Cameron or Theresa May. But is this now the party of Boris Johnson stamped with his personality in the same way perhaps it was with Thatcher? I don't think so, and I don't think so for a couple of reasons. The, the first reason is, is that, that Thatcher had a very specific political ideology. There is debate about how much it was her ideology as opposed to being that of someone like Keith Joseph, for example. But there is Thatcherism. It's named after her, whether whether you think it was hers originally or not. There is a certain ideological um, uh, playbook to what, what she was actually attempting to do, whereas with Boris Johnson, we don't see that too much. But I think it's also that Boris Johnson seems like someone who wanted to be Prime Minister but didn't necessarily entirely like the job. Mrs Thatcher seemed to love being Prime Minister. Boris Johnson seems to be a slightly uncomfortable figure in certain regards. Now, that isn't to say that I think he's going to leave Downing Street tomorrow or in a year. That's certainly not where I'm going. But he doesn't seem to be one of those kind of individuals who become so ingrained with the party that they become almost the kind of representative of it. Um, I don't think that he's a political heavy hitter in that regard. That doesn't mean that he won't have an impact on the Conservative Party. It doesn't mean he won't have an impact on the country. But I'm not sure that he is to to the Conservative Party what someone like Thatcher was, or even to the Labour Party as, as Blair was. Um, do you think that um, factionalism that has been a problem sometimes in the Conservative Party before is is a significant challenge now to Boris Johnson? Can the Tories sort of continue as as one party with so many different groups? And I mean, we've talked a lot about internal Tory party rebellions, backbench challenges under Boris Johnson have in some ways been bigger than than the opposition issues. Mm-hmm. I, I think that, that they have both a problem and and a potential kind of remedy to it. You're right, they have increasing problems. And as we hope that we come out of COVID, those problems and that factionalism are, beco- are going to become more obvious because there's less to unite against. It's, it's you know, we're beginning to, to lose in politics the idea of us all being in it together because of the severity of COVID. Um, so I think that that will probably lead to more factionalism. And an AC-seat majority allows MPs to rebel in a fairly safe environment without knowing that the government is going to fall if, if they and the person who sits next to them rebel. What they might have going in their favour, which might temper that somewhat, is the Labour Party. The Conservative Party haven't really had a particularly effective opposition, as far as they're concerned, on anything other than Brexit in, in quite some considerable time. And Brexit came with its own kind of 
divisions within the parties as well as between them. If the Conserv- if the Labour Party, I say, should say, managed to pull themselves together and actually create a, an effective opposition, that may well galvanise the Conservative Party to have a yeah. little bit more kind of stability within them, and that might actually help them. Yeah. So they have problems, but they have potential solutions. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The Center for Policy Studies is a think tank founded by Margaret Thatcher and others back in the 1970s and has been a ginger group for free markets, small state, low tax, self-determination and responsibility. Some Tories, though, now feel that is not the country's current direction. Well, joining us now, I'm pleased to say, is Robert Colville, who is director of the Centre for Policy Studies. Now, Robert, you wrote last weekend about how careful Boris Johnson has to be about keeping grassroots Tories on board. Just explain your thinking and why that is. Sure. Well, I was actually making a parallel with, with Keir Starmer, where he, he has sort of made an ungodly... In order to get the Labour leadership, he made an ungodly pact with the Corbynite left, which was to pretend to them that, that Corbynism was a, was a wonderful thing, um, and has now... Uh, but, but, could, but could be somehow combined with electability. And he's now turned his back on that pact and is focusing on the electability bit, and they're, they're, all, they're all hopping mad. Um, the point I was making is that the, the Tories have their own problem with, with their activists, in particular in terms of housing, where um, you know, it's something we need to solve for the good of the nation, but um, you know the people with, who have houses and who who really oppose the new planning reforms tend to be the, mo- the most uh, you know tend to be the people who are propping up the bar in the Conservative Association. So clearly, a problem to keep all sides in in the tent at the same time, I suppose, Robert. I mean, do you see the party in a way, uh, or do you think many of the Tories see the party moving in a kind of radical change over the last two years? Party of high tax and spend. Uh, social conservatism still there. I mean, is this a kind of change that's really, really making the party different? Yeah, well, there's, I mean, there's all sorts of um, explanations for that. But, but fundamentally, yes. I mean, you start the process with Brexit, which sort of forcibly refashions the Tory party as, as the party of lead. But that, in turn, you know, refashions the Tory electoral coalition. It makes it less educated. It makes it much less metropolitan. And it brings into the tent the sort of people who are quite happy with high government spending, but are, you know, but are more socially conservative. In fact, you know, this is a, this is a, this is a, the pattern of British politics, that voting behaviour is now, you know, governed by age and social attitudes far more than it is by things like um, by class or, or, or economics. You know, you know, if you look, you know, you, if you're trying to sort of to, to predict how people are going to vote, um, their income is actually not a great um, sign of it. But what we, whereas whereas their age is and their kind of their position on on, on cultural issues definitely is. And then, of course, sorry, just to, like, then on top of that, you label the pandemic, which necessitates this enormous big state response, you know, this yes. enormous spending of public money. 
And on top of that, you label Boris Johnson's own interest, in, in, instincts, which, I mean, you know, Boris Johnson's campaign for Tory leader was basically sort of Michael Heseltine with Brexit on top. And all of the all of the, the right wing of the Conservative Party went along with that because they wanted the Brexit bit, it turned out, more than they wanted the, the low tax, small state free market bit. Um, well, I mean, that's interesting. You mentioned the pandemic. And I'll just say masks. I mean, um, not nearly as political as in some other countries, but it has become somewhat political in the sense that it sort of symbolises too big a government, too much power. I mean, some in the party fear um, what has become of, of the Tories as a result of, of the pandemic. You, you think yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm less. I, I think I'm less concerned about that. I mean, obviously, I think things like vaccine passports are, are a big issue. And, and you know, if there was an attempt to go for another lockdown, I think that would be hugely contentious. Mm. But I think the, the extent to which the Tory coalition, like the voters as opposed to the MPs, are, are socially libertarian on this stuff, I think it can, can be overstated. Not least because most Tory voters are quite old, and as, as the people who are most vulnerable to the virus. You know, they're, they're, they're actually quite happy for people to take precautions against it. Um, you know, the, the British public, have one of the sort of fascinating things about the pandemic is I mean, we have this image in our heads of the freedom-loving Britain and, you know, John Bull and, um, you know, uh, you know, you get your, you know, you know, Englishman's home with his castle. Actually, it turns out, you know, the most popular answer in pretty much every poll has been, you know, lock us up, lock everyone up, close the borders, uh, you know, shut down the economy. But But doesn't that sort of stir your soul a bit, Robert, because you lead a, a, a think tank that, that, that talks about free market, small state, low tax, self-determination. We've, we've mentioned all these things. I mean, this must surely depress you if that's the case. Yes, I mean, it, it, it is obviously depressing to see a Conservative Party that is putting extra taxes on business, that is putting extra taxes on, on, on workers, um, you know, that is, you know, and... Um, you know, some of it is, is force majeure. Some of it, you know, some of it is necessary. Some of it is demographics. But at the same time, I think it, it is fair to say the, the sort of the, the pro-growth element of the Tory offer doesn't seem to be as worked out um, and as fully fleshed as some of the other um, elements. You know, um, Boris Johnson has a lot of ideas of how he wants to spend money. It doesn't seem at the moment as though you know, the government is as, is as committed to, you know, to, um, to unleashing the power of free enterprise in order to, to generate the money that they need to spend in the first place. Well, in that case, what does Boris Johnson have to tell this party conference? I mean, you know, we are beyond the enormous electoral uh, success that he had with the 80-seat majority. We are beyond now the, in some senses, the worst of the pandemic, we hope, and looking ahead to, you know, an election that may be one, two years away, we're not really sure. Well, so, I mean, the theme of they've chosen for the conference is getting on with the job, and I think we're going to hear an awful lot about that. The, the idea is that you know, this is you know, now the pandemic is over; it is time for a you know, big, bustling activist government to deliver on the people's priorities. Uh, to use a phrase which was, um, uh, you know, um, which which was put put in place um, uh, after the election victory, or indeed on on the day of the election victory. I remember I was I was involved in the campaign. I was one of the people who worked on the manifesto, and I remember you just, suddenly you go to the victory rally and you see all these campaigns, all these banners marked the people's priorities around that. You're like, okay, <laughs> so that's that's the plan. Um, but the um, I think the um, but you know this 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 is very much you know this uh, conference is very much a sort of moments of continuity rather than change. Um, mm. You've you know you've already had the reshuffle. You've, you've had yes, you've had the reshuffle, which has put in place the ministers who are meant to do this delivery. You've got um, you know the budget coming up, the spending review coming up, which is going to set the 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 um, scope of public spending for the next three years. You've got the levelling up plan, which will come out at the same time. You've got the 
COP26 climate summit, you've got the net zero strategy, you know, there's, there's an awful lot already happening. So I, I think, you know, I don't think we're going to get any sort of big departures from Boris Johnson. I think we're going to get a kind of a sort of encapsulation of, of his government's agenda and his government's priorities. And it's, you know, it's plans to build back better, to use another uh, catchphrase um, from the pandemic. But that all sounds to some extent like hiding what is really the big tension underneath, which is how do you keep a, as broad a church as the Tory party now is encapsulating the uh, the Red Wall Tories, the new Tories, plus, of course, the South East, the home counties, the Shire Tories. How do you keep that working together? They're not on the same path. Well, I mean, they're not on the same path in some respects. But as I said, culturally, and you know, they kind of are. Like they all, you know, they all, they all sort of, you know, they may be earning different amounts, but they're all worried about, you know, about energy bills. They're all worried about what's going to happen to their kids. They're all worried about crime. They're all, you know, they're all worried about whether people will be able to afford houses. They're all worried about, you know, the slightly shabby state of the high street and whether it's, you know, and what's going to happen after the pandemic. Um, mm. uh, you know, and they're all, they're, they're all not very keen on all this kind of. Um, you know, woke culture warrior nonsense that they keep hearing about. Although it's not, you know, it's not a huge part of their of their, of their identity. Um, you know, I think, you know, the, the fundamental truth of British politics, um, even more than American politics, because we don't have the primary uh, stage, is that you know you win by by basically dominating the centre w- while keeping your base. At the moment, there is no threat to the Tories on the right. Nigel Farage has gone away. The Reform Party, which replaced it, is not doing. Which replaced UKIP is not doing doing anything really you know you know the tories don't feel you know, obviously they can't ignore their base but they but they're like it's not, if you if you can contrast the the labor where you know there's the possibility you know, they need to win votes directly from the tories but while avoiding leaking them to the greens on the left and then there's lib dems yeah. as well you know i mean the, you know, the tory coalition is much you know at the moment and you know who can say because it's quite a volatile people time but at the moment it is it's an awful lot easier to see labor losing votes than it is tories losing votes Yes, but then I suppose it's it's are you laying seeds for the future of of sort of self destruction in a way? Is this a party of the old? I've heard the argument, you know, that that mm. people in the north and the south have so much in common. I've heard it from Conservative MPs. Is this a party of of the older generation? Yes, I mean it, it, it obviously is a party of the older generation. Um, I mean that's uh, you know and and the, and and the homeowning generation, which are not coincidentally the same thing. I mean, I think, there's, as I mentioned in my Sunday Times column a few weeks back, I think there's an interesting parallel here with, with Peter Thornycroft. So I mean, one of the big tensions in, in British government at the moment is that uh, you know, the Prime Minister really quite likes spending money and the Treasury and the Chancellor institutionally really don't like spending money because they are worried about borrowing, they're worried about debt costs, um, you know, they want to, to keep things tight, which they always do. And um, so there's an interesting parallel to, to Harold Macmillan where, you know, um, he goes through chancellors very, very quickly. Um, and one of them, Peter Thornycroft, resigns saying, look, we're, you know, we're spending too much money. Like, we, this can't, we can't go on like this. You know, we need to be the party of sound money or, or we're on the road to ruin. And, you know, Thornycroft is right. Like, um, Macmillan's policies, you know, keep the economy propped up. But, you know, t- 10 years, 20 years down the line, you, you're, you're getting into, you're, it's, the ni- it's the 1970s and you need Margaret Thatcher to come and fix all the problems that he was identifying. But, um, you know, in the short term, Macmillan wins the next election in an absolute landslide. So, um, you know, the British, you know, there is a, you know, you know, um, British politicians can carry on sort of spending quite highly and, uh, and uh, you know, for, for, for quite a while before the, before the bills come home. Yeah, it's a fascinating thought of um, 
Harold McMillan, Boris Johnson, you've never had it so good. I, I don't know if that's something that would uh, work very well in the next election here, but it's a fascinating thought. Yeah, but, but, uh, yeah, they, they, they are both old, they are both old Italian populists who reached wow. out to a new, a new working-class electorate for the Conservative Party. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.